0: We're going to be looking at the book of Jonah this morning, but before we go there, uh, allow me to give you a little bit of short history lesson regarding uh, the time that this the story took place. Uh, a couple of things. I have four things, actually, and it's very pertinent to what's going on with Jonah. Okay, number one, the events of Jonah, the book of Jonah, took place during the times of the divided kingdom. Now, remember, before the divided kingdom, you had Saul, David, Solomon. You had a king over Israel. But then there was Jeroboam and Rehoboam, two sons of Solomon, and from that point on, the kingdom was what, divided into the northern and the southern part. Now, the time of Jonah was the time, or oh, the, the geographic, the, the prophet Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom at this time. Okay? So, the king that reigned was Jeroboam II. We did to know a little bit about him and the kind of reign that he had. Number one, it was the longest reign of all the uh, northern kingdom kings, kings of northern kingdom, 41 years. By far, it was the longest reign of any of those kings of the northern kingdom, also called Israel at that time. Southern kingdom was called Judah, okay? Uh, during his reign, according to 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 through 27, Israel's borders expanded. Now, the reason this was is because the surrounding nations, mostly were going through time of internal conflict, okay? And so they were so focused on inward that uh, Jeroboam II was able to expand the borders a little bit, okay? Assyria, for example, was one of those that was going through great conflict. And by the way, in 722, it would be Assyria that would come in and destroy the northern kingdom, Okay? So that's what's going on. Not only that, but Jeroboam II's reign was one of a very successful political reign. They were experiencing what, not just expansion of orders, but they were expan- experiencing uh, a lot of peaceful times and prosperous times. His reign uh, was described as politically successful, excuse me, but spiritually it wasn't. We also read according to 2 Corinthians 13, 24, that King Jeroboam II, quote, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. So here's the picture. They're experiencing great economic prosperity. They're experiencing a time of peace. but did spiritually. They were hurt. Sound familiar? Just because you're experiencing peace, Just because you're experiencing prosperity does not equal spiritual success. This is a picture of the opposite of that. They were doing evil on the side of the Lord. Okay, here's another one. Jonah was the prophet to the northern tribe. His two contemporaries were Amos and Hosea. Okay, so during this time frame, you also had two other prophets, Amos and Hosea, and they were prophesying impending judgment of God upon the northern kingdom. So here you have this group of people the northern kingdom experiencing broadening the borders in peace basically around the surrounding nations in time of prosperity and yet you have these two prophets, both Amos and Hosea prophesying impending doom from God. Because of their spiritual problem, their spiritual condition. Amos back up just a little bit. You've got Jonah back up to Obadiah, then Amos would be the the next book. I want to give you an example of their prophecies. Amos, for example, chapter five, verses one and two. Hear this word, which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. This is chapter five, verse one. She has fallen; she will not rise again. The virgin Israel, she lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. You go to verse twenty-one of the same chapter. I hate, I reject your festivals nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. This is the prophet speaking on behalf of God to Israel. Then you get to verse 27, the very last verse of chapter five of Amos. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And you can back up and you can talk about Hosea. And he gets much more specific here. Let me show you this. Hosea, I think it's chapter 11, verse five. He says this, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, there it is. There's the prophecy. But Assyria, he will be their king. Assyria will be the king of the northern kingdom because they refused to return to me. God sent Amos. Now get a picture now. Immediately. He sent Amos and he sent Hosea to prophesy to the northern kingdom of impending judgment from God because they would not repent of their ways and turn back to God. Turn back to Yahweh. And so in the midst of this prosperity, peace and broadening of borders, spiritually, they were dead. They were hurting. Last but not least, we have the city of Nineveh. The capital, by the way, of Assyria, the nation that would come in and take that northern kingdom of Israel. Maybe, I'm thinking maybe, it was Jonah refused to go to Nineveh at first because he understood Amos' and Hosea's prophecy that Assyria would be the one to come down. So when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach, that's why we read chapter 1 of Jonah that Jonah said, No, I'm going the opposite direction. I can't stand those people. Now, I want us to stand together. Having said that, and summarize it a little bit. I, I, I want us to read portions of Jonah together. And so if you please stand together to read the reading of God's Word. Uh, I'm going to do a little smattering here, so I'm going to take my time. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish for the presence of the Lord. Let's go on to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is God's second commissioning to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Go to verse five in chapter three. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Go to verse 10. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not it. Let's go on to chapter 4. Go ahead with this, verses 1 through 3. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. In other words, God has killed me. I can't stand what you did to those heathen people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, I pray as we go through this book of Jonah together this morning, that we would stir our hearts and the word of God would produce conviction where it's needed. Father, that we would see not Jonah, not the sailors so much, uh, not the Ninevites so much who repented and believed, but God overriding all that, this book is about you, your heart. You are the evangelist. You're the one that seeks after sinners. And as the church of Jesus Christ, if we take you on, we'll take that on as well. So God, please. Uh, stir us to action, stir us to conviction, uh, to be seekers of lost men and women and children for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. The outline is quite simple. And I've already alluded to it. Not alluded to it. I've already stated it. Is Chapters 1 and 2 is the first part, of the first call of Jonah. And chapters 3 and 4 is the second call or the first commissioning and the second commissioning. After the first commissioning, it's pretty clear what happens. By the way, Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament who ever runs from God. The only one. Okay? But he runs from him in chapter 1. And by the way, sailors get saved as a result. Wow, God's still in control. But then he gets swallowed up by this big, huge, giant fish. And then he repents. And that leads to the chapter 3 and 4 of the second commissioning. And after the second commissioning, we had Jonah goes to where he's supposed to go. He goes and preaches to those people. But then when they respond, and God shows mercy and compassion, he gets angry. And so that's basically the story of Jonah. And by the way, the story just drops right there. We know nothing else about Jonah. There's an object lesson at the very end, but that's it about Jonah. We know really nothing else about him after that point. All we know is the story ends with him being angry and God saying, what right do you have to be angry? That's it. So let's start the story in chapter one. Speaking in verses one and two, God's called to Jonah to preach. Look at this. Verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So what he tells Jonah to do at this point, he says, go. Preach to the people, God has a wonderful plan for your life. No. Preach to the people, live your best life now. No. Peace, peace, everywhere's peace, you're going to be okay. No. Go to chapter 3, verse 4. So we learn the gist of the message. Jonah began to go to the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet 40 days of Nineveh. Will be overthrown. Watch out, the impending judgment of God is at hand. An unpopular message. It is still an unpopular message today, beloved. Isn't it? What do we want? What does the gospel do? What is one of the parts of the gospel that's warning people the judgment to come? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't, you will experience to go through eternal judgment of God. So just notice the, the message that Jonah was to deliver to the Ninevites here. In 40 days, according to chapter 3, verse 4, within 40 days, God is going to destroy you. He's going to overthrow you. Now we have verse 3, but Jonah. I love the contrast. But, contrary to God's commissioning, Jonah went 180. He went the opposite direction. And the rest of chapter 1 is about who? Jonah's, what? Rebellion. Jonah's rebellion. He gets on a ship. And he meets these sailors. And I want to question, who are these people? Who are these sailors? They weren't Jews. They worshiped many gods. They worshiped many gods. I don't know if it's irony, but but Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites but he gets on this ship with these sailors he's never met before. They're I'm sure they're Gentiles and they were polytheists, they worshiped many gods, and yet God is still going to use Jonah to reach those sailors. In other words, God's the evangelist. And he even uses a rebellious prophet to reach lost sinners. Isn't that unbelievable? You see, I say that because of this. When you read the book of Jonah. It's not about Jonah. I'm going to say this. Jonah is not the primary subject. The fish, in chapter 2, is the primary object or subject. The sailors aren't even the primary object or subject. The Ninevites in chapter 3 are not the primary object or subject. The primary subject is who, beloved, God. It's about Him. He seeks after the saved. He initiates salvation He sends men to go preach the gospel. God is the seeker. God is the evangelist. And if God's that way, and we are conformed into the image of God, the image of Christ, then we are to take on what? The heart of God. The heart of an evangelist. Does that make sense? Let's go. We'll look at that a little bit later on. Let's continue on with this story. At verse 5, we know that these sailors became afraid. and Every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo. So he had all these different worshippers of different gods and very different religions there. But notice Jonah. He goes below. And he falls asleep. Before we get to that, let me back up and I want to show you the transformation that takes place in the lives of these sailors. Go to verses 14 and 16. Because after the storm, after they figure out who this prophet is, and he's running away from Yahweh, notice what happens with these sailors. Verse 14, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord. They're crying out to Yahweh. They're crying out to Jonah's God. They forsook theirs. They're not trusting in theirs anymore. Theirs is no match for Jonah's God. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, Have done as you have pleased. Look at verse 16. After they throw Jonah into the water, then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They believed and they repented. Incredible. Incredible. They prayed to Yahweh, the God of Jonah. They feared Him. They offered sacrifices and made vows. Did they truly repent? That's the question. If you like, turn to Luke chapter 11. Verses 29. So I want to answer the question: Did they truly repent? We know that they did, according to this passage, Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. Now I want you to know, in this context here, by the way, kind of apropos for today, with this, this, this whole thing tomorrow, the eclipse, solar eclipse, know this, verse 16. Others tried to test and were demanding him a sign from heaven people are always looking for signs okay when we get to verse 29 still in context he's addressing this and the crowds were increasing verse 29 of luke chapter 11 he says this this generation is a wicked generation it seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of who jonah for just as jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, how was that three days. Listen, you're going to see Christ in the book of Jonah, when we see at the end of chapter 1, he was in that big fish for three days and three nights. How long was Jesus in the tomb? Three days. three. See that? See the parallelism? He says in verse 30, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. For example, verse 31, the Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Queen of came up to hear Solomon and his wisdom. But something greater than Solomon is here. Illustration number two, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented, because they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The people that were saved, okay, will be witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ. they will stand up. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Scaling. Well, let's, let's look at Jonah for a minute. Let's look at him in chapter one. According to verse five, he's asleep. And, wow, everybody else is afraid of dying. It's kind of incredible, isn't it? I don't know if I'd be asleep. I'd be worried about it. I'd be so nervous, I wouldn't know what to do. I would actually be scared. Let's just be blunt about it. Okay. But notice his candor also in verse nine. He says to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He was bold. He had his doctrine correct, didn't he? He yeah, had good theology right here. My God prepared the yours. I got the true God. Okay? He referred to his God, Yahweh, as to the creator who made the sea and the dry lands. And then we go on. In verse 12, what does he say? He says this, Pick me up and throw me in the sea. What do you think he's saying in modern lingo? Just kill me. What else would he mean by that, right? Just, just throw me over. I'll drown. What a miserable prophet at this point, right? What a miserable way to be. Pick me up and see, then the sea will become calm for you. He even knew it. He knew he was the problem, right? He knew he was the problem. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. But his men were showing some respect in verse 13. The men rode desperately, trying to, they didn't want to throw him in the sea. They didn't want to kill him. Because he's truly a prophet. Our backs are against the wall. If we do nothing, the sea's going to kill us. If we throw him in, we throw Jonah into the sea, then his God might kill us. And then they called on the Lord when their backs were against the wall and their gods did not work. They turned to who? Yahweh. The one and only true God. And that's what we have in verse 14 and 16. But think for a minute. What? What created this Jonah? Why did he respond this way? I mean, I have really grappled with this. I had a hard time with this. And the only answer is this. He did not like the Ninevites. He didn't like them. Actually, I think he hated them. It could have been because he understood the prophecies of Hosea and Amos. It also could be because the Ninevites, the capital of Assyria, they were very violent people. Very violent. They were wicked. I mean, they're like the worst of sinners. You know anybody like that? It's almost, it's almost like we think, but sure the gospel would not Ain't No way that person's getting saved. See what's going on here? That's the only thing that could have been going on in Jonah's mind that would cause him the only prophet we know of in the Old Testament that fled from God, that did away from his call. I want you to preach and deliver a message to this people. And Jonah's like, there ain't no way, I'm out of here. Wow! us to shut up? What causes us to not say anything? Maybe because we look upon other people as different or helpless that God cannot reach them because they are that way or this way? That's exactly what was going on in Jonah's mind. It's the only thing that makes sense. That's why when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became what? Angry. Angry at what? That they actually repented that they actually believed. What we have here is the power of the gospel to change the worst kind of life you can imagine. Besides, it changed my life. We're talking about the power of God in salvation. The means by which he saves a life supernaturally is through the foolishness of the preaching of the word of God the gospel. It's the power to show what? That it's the power of God unto salvation. Not man or his techniques, but it's the power of the Word of God. We rely on the Word of God, not our methods. That's why we pray. So I pray for us, everybody. We need the power of the Gospel in our lives. The presence of Christ. We go on I just want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back and this is the end about his attitude. Let's go on to chapter 2. Chapter 2 describes the ordeal. After verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. We don't know if it was a whale or not. We don't know how big it was. It could have been huge, by the way. Okay, I like my mind to imagine at this point a little bit. We're not told the details. But God could have obviously, in his sovereignty and his providence, this fish for this very reason, right? But it's a pretty big fish. The tail could have been from that wall to this wall. But can you imagine being in the belly of a big fish? It's kind of gross, isn't it? What kind of acids are right in there? It had to stink. You know, it had seaweed all over. It was disgusting for three days and three nights. I was just gross. Even the water could have been up to here. I don't know if he was kind of leaning the side of the stomach, you know, and water about a foot or two high with all the other junk in it. the fish did. I don't know, but it wasn't pleasant. We know that, right? But you mind run I'm a guy, I my mind kind of run make girls so and sorry. Ladies, So, But that's really all we know. Is that God had ordained this fish to be there for that very purpose. To rebuke Jonah. Now that's what we read about here in chapter two. Notice what it says in verse 1 and following. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress. I bet. <laughs> that's, that's, a thing that you're distress, alright, to the Lord. And he answered me, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. It was dark. You couldn't see a thing. He didn't have a flashlight. He didn't have a, a bit to light what was going on in here. Right? Nothing like that. Verse 3, for he had cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, through the sailors. They cast me into the sea. And though the storm calmed, he's still struggling. He's in the sea by himself. The boat's going off into the distance. He's there. Verse 4, so I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. God, I need you. All of a sudden, the the suddenness of imminent death gripped him. Oh, he was a big man in front of those sailors just throw me over but once they threw him over he became a little kid once again he got scared verse 5 water water encompassed me to the point of death the great deep engulfed me i think in verse 5 he's talking about how he was first thrown into water and tossed by the waves and water's coming over him and I think verse 6, which says, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life in the pit, O oh Lord God. I think that might be in reference to what the fish swallowed him. Bars were around me. Maybe inside the, the, the fish. Verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Again, your holy temple, your holy temple into your presence. Now why does he do that? Because at the end of verse nine. we understand salvation is from the Lord. If I am to be delivered from this mess that I put myself in, God is the only one that can deliver me. Verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up into the dry land again, If you think about that for a minute, it's pretty gross. Pretty gross. So Jonah shows remorse. Or is it repentance? I'm actually confused. I'm not sure. Because you get to chapter 4 and he's just angry. So is this just remorse? That he's sorry because of what happened to him? And he's going to respond in chapter 3. He's going to go to Nineveh. He's going to preach the message. But then in chapter 4, he's angry. So was it remorse or repentance? I don't know. We're not told here. What I do know is that hearts not right. He did not rejoice as the angels do when people get saved. He got what? Angry, chapter 4, verse 1. Well, let's go on to chapter 3, where God recommissions him. Verse 1, Now the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. The Great City and proclaimed to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Do you know that Nineveh was made up of like New York City, different boroughs or different sections? There's been a lot of archaeology discoveries in the city of Nineveh, and it was in different parts. And the, the modern-day contemporary comparisons of Nineveh would be a lot of the commentators say it's New York City because of different boroughs or different sections of it. It was a very great, large city made up of various sections. Verse 3, Jonah, instead of rebelling, he obeys. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It took him a three day walk. Verse 4, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he, one day apart, and he cried out and said, Yet 40 days in Nineveh, Nineveh will be overthrown. Warning, warning, Nineveh, if you must repent. The judgment of God is coming upon you. He'd never been there before. They didn't like him. Didn't like him. Now look at the response of the people in verses 5 and following. Then the people never believed in God. They got saved. This is the power of God. They believed in God. And they called a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This was the far eastern way of showing repentance and humility before God. And oftentimes they would tear their clothes because they were just disgusted and overwhelmed over their own sinfulness. That's what this is a picture of. From the greatest to the least of them. What do you mean by that? Next verse, even the king of Nineveh, the greatest of them to the least of them, were involved in this, in repentance. Now when the word reached in verse 6, the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, and he too covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. Pictured humility and repentance and confession. He also at verse seven issued a proclamation for the people. In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink. It's a call to fasting as well. Because of conviction of sin. The work of God through a resentful prophet named Jonah. Verse 8. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. They were known as a very violent people. Very violent. Who knows, verse 9, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Look at verse 10 for a moment. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. God saw what they did, and He did not send judgment upon that generation. This is not contrary to God's sovereignty. This is not contrary to the immutability of God that he does not change. It's not contrary. Let me get this for you. Let me quote this. He sovereignly chose to make his own action, that is, God sovereignly chose to make his own action depend on human responses in this case. Why? Because God ordains the means and the end. And this is one of the means that God has ordained to achieve the end. God's in control the whole way through. Let me say that one more time. He sovereignly, that is God sovereignly chose to make his own action depend upon human responses in this case. And he does that often. Right now next to this, Jeremiah 18. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 18. I want to read three or four verses for you. Verses 7 through 10. I want you to listen to this. This supports what I'm saying. Jeremiah 18.7, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or destroy it. This is God now. Jeremiah prophesied from the Lord. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nature or concerning a kingdom to build up, to plant it. If it does evil in my sight, by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I have promised to bless it. Wow. I think the United States was planted by God? Back in the 16th, seventeen hundreds. All nations are God's control of all nations. That would include us, and not just us. It's not like we're God's gift to God, okay, in the United States. We are one of many nations, in different shapes, kinds, and types, etc., etc., etc. Okay? Yes, God planted this nation like He's planted all nations over all time. But you gotta wonder for a moment. He planted us and He blessed us. But then we take God out of the picture. So what do you think might be next for our nation? For any nation in a similar scenario. That he might uproot it, pull it down, or destroy it. But Syria was mighty. And it was used by God to take and to conquer the Norman kingdom. Syria no longer is. They were conquered eventually as well. Babylon came. And God raised them up. Habakkuk will tell us. That God raised up Babylon to what take the Southern Kingdom, and Babylon fell. Love That's why we're bastards, right? I, I gotta say this, and I say it often: we are citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven way before we are citizens of the United States of America. What I am saying is this, I don't hate our country. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is this. I will never live for my country and be involved in a way that overshadows the being a child of the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of heaven. Does that make a little bit of sense? I hope y'all are articulating it correctly. Oftentimes this happens. I praise God that I was born here. I didn't have a choice, by the way. Where I was born, who my parents would be, right? Did you? No. But now we do is be born-again believers. And, And we should never live for our country in a way that overshadows living for the kingdom to come. Right? And actually, I think that plays into the Jonah a little bit, because remember, the northern kingdom was were experiencing peace around its borders. And they were experiencing economic prosperity, which those two things often lead to complacency for God's people. Does that make sense? We get comfortable and we don't want to get interrupted and we don't want to go out of the way. That might have also been kind of Jonah's problem as well. Not only was he called to go to a people he didn't like, but he was called to Upset his lifestyle. Maybe. To get up and go. I see that. Because that's the context. during are in Jeroboam's second frame. Let's go back to chapter four now. We begin to get to the end of the book. Chapter four, we had Jonah's response to God. And this is right before the lesson which is verses 5 through 11. So Let's just look at the quick response in verses 1 through 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. What greatly displeased him? The response of the Ninevites. God showed them compassion. You read in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Let's go back to chapter 1. Remember why I fled you to begin with? This is why I went the other direction, God. I knew you were like this. I knew you were God of mercy and compassion. I knew you had the power to change lives. I knew you would respond like this if they would repent. Therefore, in order to forestall this, the middle of verse 2, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. God, I know your character. You're slow to anger and abundant loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. I knew you'd respond this way if they responded that way. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, Look I said. Please take my life from me. Oh my goodness. The angst, that anger, that hatred that must be there. I don't know how else to explain it. For death is better to me than life? Are you kidding me? Wow. You gotta love God's response in verse 4. John Do you have good reason to be angry? Who in the world are you? Right? Let's follow this for a minute. In verses 5 through 11, this is three basic parts. Verse, Verse 4 is the question. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 is the illustration. And then verse 9, 10, and 11 is the explanation of the illustration. So let's look after the question, verse 4, let's look at the illustration, verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. Verse 5, And Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, the city of Nineveh. He repented, and he walks to the outskirts. He's in the suburbs now, or a little bit further away. He's kind of in the country, and from where he's at, he can see this whole massive city. And he sits there, and it's hot. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah. I wonder in verse five. Well, I wonder if it's true. I wonder if it's genuine. I wonder if it's going to be real. So he sits out there in judgment, looking upon them, and going, "Let's see what really is happening." Then they say, "They believe." They say to "Let's watch." Verse six. The Lord God appointed a plant, (laughs) and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. It's hot out there, and God showed compassion to Jonah, didn't He? By sending the plant to grow over him. To deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Thank you, God. Lord gives. Praise the Lord. I'm comfortable again. That's not something I needed reprieve. Thank you, God. It makes me happy. Thank you very much. But then verse 7. The contrary to that, God then appointed a worm. The next day when dawn came and attacked the plant and it withered. And I'm sure that day got hot. When the sun came up, verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. When the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, then begged with all his soul to die again. The time of this book was that I was going to ask be again. Right? From chapter 1, the sailor's I'm in there, and earlier on in chapter 4, once again, because of this worm came and ate his plants. Death is better for me than life. Well, beloved, that's pretty much it with Jonah, right there. That's it. We're left with Jonah in this miserable condition. We don't know what happened after that. That's because I don't think the object of the story is really Jonah, but it's God. And so what follows is an explanation of this illustration, verse 9 and 11, Then God said to Jonah, you have good reason to be angry about the plant?" And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and the left, as well as many animals? In other words, this, do you have a right to be angry, Jonah?" Do you have a right to have compassion for a plant that you did not work for, that I freely gave you? If you have compassion for a plant that you did not work for, how much more should I have compassion for a people that I created? Who do not know the difference between their right or their left, verse 11. That could be one of two things, either a metaphor referring to their spiritual lack of discernment in their ignorance, or it could be me, including children, young enough to know their right or their left, which means a whole lot more than 120,000 people in Nineveh, maybe about 600,000 is the estimate. But it's always a description of their spiritual condition before the Lord. You basically, Johnny, you have no right to be angry when I show compassion on whom I will to show compassion. Who are you? I created these souls. I created this before the foundation of the earth. We've got a grandbaby coming, Ava Grace. Her birth has been ordained since before the beginning of this universe. We were all in the mind of God before we were ever born, beloved. So are the Ninevites. And so you go to a Romans 9 where, where, where Paul argues God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy will have compassion on whom he has compassion. There is no injustice with God. That's why we're given a vision and revelation of heaven when we get there. There will, be, there will be people from every tribe, every tribe, every nation. There will be people who were little kids who were saved at 4, 5, and 6 out of the sandbox. And the be people in heaven saved after they've murdered somebody. They got saved in prison. Why? For the glory of God. To show forth his goodness, and his grace, and his mercy. In other words, Jonah, you are more, what do I want to say? You, You care more about your own personal comfort than the destiny of souls. That's the lesson there in these last verses. So what do we learn from this? Here's a couple things. I'm going to end with this. First, God is the soul winner. God is the soul winner. What what do I mean by that? I mean by this God is not passively, passively waiting for people to come to him. No, he is aggressively seeking the lost. He is not standing idly by, hoping and waiting for someone to come to him. No, he goes after them. Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, I came to what? Seek. I came to seek. I'm the one seeking. Why not you write, you, if you have time, write down Romans chapter 5. I'll read it. Romans chapter 5. Listen to this. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Evangelism is God's idea. Not ours. It's God's idea. It's birthed from his heart, so to speak. He's the great evangelist. God even used Jonah's rebellion to seek after and to save some remote sailors sailing the Tarshish that Jonah never met before. Isn't that incredible? Second of all, that know it's getting hot, so I'm wrapping up. I'm here sweating already. Second of all, God's love us for all kinds and types of people. As I just mentioned, we learn this in the book of Ruth a Moabite. And now we learn it again here in the book of Jonah. God's grace goes beyond the Jews. It reaches even to the least expected. The story of Jonah really reflects the heart of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God. Third, peace and prosperity often breed complacency for a people, for the church we reminded that. Actually, the story of Jonah during the day was a rebuke to the nation of Israel. Not only were they supposed to live for God, but they were supposed to be a witness to what? The nations around them. And they had failed. And I think Jonah the prophet is kind of an example of the nation as a whole. Of how they were to be a witness to the surrounding nations. Times of peace and prosperity breed complacency. Number four. We need to be warned of that. Number four. And this is the last one. And this is mine. When I read this story, when I see Jonah's response, and at times I search my own heart, I kind of see this attitude now with really creep up in my own life. I get a glimpse of what can happen inside my own heart. There are times like Jonah, I think that guy's a guy or that gal's not savable. They're beyond God's reach. You know what that does? That makes God look small. That makes the gospel look ineffective and powerless. That's not true. No way, no way that person could get saved that those people, even if they did hear the gospel, they're not going to respond. They're murderers, they're thieves, they're communists, they're Muslim, they're homosexuals. They're beyond the reach of the gospel. That is a lie for the pit of hell. They're liberals! They're wicked thugs! There's no hope for them! They're just evil! They're never gonna repent and believe. Has that ever, those thoughts never gone through your mind at any time in your Christian life? When you're watching the news, and you see all the wickedness that is out there? Jonah rebukes me. Reminds me that God is the soul winner. It's His gospel. It's His word. He seeks. And here I want to end with this. He chooses the means to reach the lost. And the very ordinary means, by the way. It's the church. It's the church. That Christ be exalted through us. And the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we seek after opportunities. May we pray for opportunities. May we, see, see, if God's the seeker, if Christ says, I came to seek and to save the lost, and we are conformed to the image of Christ, then we too will be what? Seekers. We will pursue people who share the gospel. Without either of us on this side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, thank you for this book. Thank you for this four chapters of Jonah, powerful. A powerful reminder of the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, that God, you, the ultimate, I think the ultimate lesson throughout all this is you are the soul winner. Evangelism is your idea, it's your plan. It's birthed from your heart. not moving. So God, help us to walk by faith in you. Help us to be conformed to the image of our Savior, who he himself says he came to seek and to save. And, and we know that we are the body of Christ, and we are to reflect the head of the body, the head of the church, Jesus, which means that he seeks, we, we also seek also that we go out and we look for ways and opportunities and we pray for them to share Christ. So God, I pray that we would be healthy. We would not be like Jonah, that think the gospel is only for a limited few or a limited group of people, but it's for the wickedest and of sinners. And all I can say, God, like me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.